0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to this podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Snowplows were out in the pre-dawn darkness. A significant winter storm was sweeping across much of the United States on the morning of Monday, December 7, 2009. It dropped snow from the Sierra Nevada to the Great Lakes. A few inches had already fallen on the floor of Utah's Salt Lake Valley during the overnight hours. Debbie Caldwell was up early, as she always was, preparing for the arrival of her daycare kids. They trickled in, shedding coats and caps, some still rubbing sleep from their eyes. They arrived with red, snotty noses from the sub-freezing cold in the care of anxious parents who were bracing for a work week that was starting off with a bad commute. Debbie marked the time of each arrival on her log. Two of the kids, Charlie and Brayden Powell, weren't there, which was odd because they usually arrived like clockwork at 6.40 a.m. on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays. Pickups in the afternoons were another matter. Josh, their dad made a habit of showing up late, or not at all. That could be a blessing because he made the other parents uncomfortable. They had a nickname for Josh. They called him Rocks for Brains. Debbie didn't much care for Josh herself. She also didn't care for clients who showed up late, but a little delay made sense that morning in light of the weather. She continued with her Monday routine, expecting Charlie and Braden to arrive at any minute. The clock ticked past 7 a.m. and then 8. Still no sign of the Powells.
1: I was thinking, this is not like Susan. So I um, called the house. And then um, when I didn't get any phone call at the house, I thought, well, maybe she was running late to work or something. And so Josh took and dropped her off. And, and he's running, doing something else. So I called her direct line at her job and didn't get any answer there. and. So then I called his work and they said he hadn't shown up. And so I became a little concerned because the week before, Susan had talked to my husband about how to fix the furnace and change the filters and get the furnace ready to go for the season. And so I became a little concerned that something was wrong and maybe they were in the house and they were suffering from carbon monoxide.
0: Debbie had her hands full, though. Six other kids needed her attention. Some were due at school. She loaded them into her van and hit the road. But concern nagged her. She decided to detour from the school rounds to Josh and Susan's house. She pulled into the cul-de-sac, her van rolling partway up the driveway of the Powell house, making first tracks in the virgin snow.
1: There was no tire tracks coming out of the garage. There was no footprints, so I pounded on the door and pounded on the door. I didn't get any answer, so... I was, on a, I was on a school run. I had other children that I was caring for and that I needed to get to school. So I went back to to my van, and I uh, pulled up her emergency contact. Regist- it's on the form, and so I called the emergency contact, which was Jennifer Graves, and then I went to uh, drop the kids off at school.
0: Jennifer Graves was Josh Powell's sister.
1: I woke up
2: kind of feeling a little bit relieved and happy and looking forward to the future because we'd had a really hard year. We'd closed a business that was failing. We'd had some other significant issues with other family members and that was just very difficult and we felt like those things were being handled and behind us and we'd we'd gone through the worst of it And, and so I was I was pretty optimistic about the future and then we got that phone call from Debbie, and it was just devastating. Completely threw us for a loop again.
0: Jennifer told Debbie she hadn't heard from her brother or sister-in-law that morning. She grabbed her kids and her mom, Teresa, and started driving the snowy roads north toward Josh and Susan's house. Jennifer lived in West Jordan. That's about a 15-minute drive away on a good weather day from Sarah Circle. While on the way, Teresa dialed 911. It was 9:53 a.m.
3: Um,
4: my son and his wife and their two children haven't uh, responded to anything this morning. They normally would go to work and take their children to the daycare two and a half hours ago, and they're not responding to calls. So they're not responding to people pounding on their door. and There's no tracks coming out of their driveway there wasn't uh, this morning, a, few, a little while ago, when the daycare lady went over there. Are
2: they out of town?
4: Uh, I haven't had any, anything from them saying that they would be out of town, and, and it's not like them to not call their daycare lady. They're they very dependable. They both work.
0: Like Debbie, Terry worried a furnace malfunction might have filled the house on Sarah Circle with carbon monoxide gas.
3: Uh, I'm about five minutes from the house now. Okay. All right, I have them notified
2: they're going to be um, in or out. they responded to 6252 West Sarah Circle, which is 3945 South. We arrived before the police and tried to see if we could get into the house. I sent my kids around in the back. Um, no doors were open. We couldn't get in.
0: West Valley City Patrol officers Jerry Brady and Matt Rhodes were the first to arrive in response to the 911 call. They showed up within minutes at 10.02 a.m. to find Teresa, Jennifer, and her kids out front of the house. They pounded on the door and shouted. No response. The officers checked all of the doors and windows. All were locked. They attempted to peer into the garage through a window there, only to find it blocked by a blanket. In fact, they noticed all of the windows were covered. The blinds in the large bay window on the front of the house seemed to sway as if blown by hot air rising from a furnace vent. More evidence of possible carbon monoxide poisoning. Meantime, Jennifer was going door to door in the cul-de-sac, trying to find someone who might have recently talked to Josh or Susan. One neighbor gave Jennifer the name and phone number for Kiersey Hellowell.
4: I didn't have her in my contacts on my phone. I didn't know who it was, but I decided to answer it. And she said, this is Jennifer Graves, Josh's sister. When is the last time you talked to Susan? And I was instantly just had this feeling of dread come over me. And I was like, what do you mean? I just talked to her yesterday. We walked home from church together. And she said, well, she's missing. They're all missing. There's no tracks at their house. None of us can find them. They're not at work.
0: Kiersey and Susan were both members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and belonged to the same ward or local congregation. Kiersey told Jennifer about a Facebook post Susan had made on Sunday morning. It mentioned how Josh had won a flip video camera from his work Christmas party on Saturday night.
4: And so we were afraid that since he loved taking pictures, maybe he had driven them up to the canyon and they'd gone off a cliff. Or they'd slid and they were stuck stuck somewhere and had been there freezing all night.
0: The patrol officers were growing more concerned too. They figured Josh, Susan, and the boys were either unconscious in the house or hadn't been home since the storm started during the night. They called for backup. A sergeant arrived and tried to use a device called a bump key to unlock the door, but it didn't work. Short of options, the police turned to Terry and asked her permission to break a window. It took some convincing, but she agreed. It was 11.39 a.m.
3: Hi Susan, it's Jessica calling from Health Chiropractic. I did have you scheduled with the boys today at 8.40. We haven't seen or heard from you. So we were just concerned, hope nothing tragic
5: has happened. Hi Susan, we're just looking for Josh, and to make sure you guys are okay. We have received a phone call from Josh's dad, I guess. Hey, it's Mary. Um, Josh's
3: sister sort has of freaking me out, and I'm kind of stressed not hearing from you either. Thank you,
5: Susan, it's Javonna.
3: Hi Susan, it's mom. It's Monday in the afternoon, so December seventh. Susan, mm-hmm. well, we're all yeah. worried about and scared you. Susan, it's uh, so so then then call. 10, five to six. Hey mm-hmm. Susan, I'm just uh, worried yeah. about you and thinking about you. No, we're just worried about you. Yeah. We love you. I, hope, I really hope everything turns yeah. out okay. If you are okay. And you get this. Please do call me. And I'll see you then.
0: This is Cold. Episode 4. Find Susan. I'm Dave Cauley.
6: Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: All of those voices you just heard came from messages left on Susan's cell phone the day she disappeared. Let's go back to December 7th and the house on Sarah Circle. West Valley City Police Sergeant Terrence Chen wriggled through that broken window and found himself in the front room of the Powell House. The first thing he noticed were two fans aimed at wet spots on the carpet and couch. They were causing the blinds to flutter, not hot air from the furnace. Toys were scattered around the floor. A stereo had been left on. It blared a broadcast from a local radio station. Stepping over the mess, Chen came around a love seat to the front door. He unlocked it allowing the rest of the officers to enter. They started searching room by room. The upstairs bedrooms were all empty. So was the basement. Checking the garage, the officers noticed the family's minivan was gone. Teresa and Jennifer also came inside to see if anything looked amiss.
2: While I was at the house, I'd had this overwhelming feeling that he had done something to her already. Because I'd seen her purse there, I'd, seen, I'd gone through it, and her driver's license, her Sam's Club card, her temple recommend they were all in the purse. Why would she walk away without that? You know, that just seemed like a... A very abnormal thing for her to to do um, for any length of, significant length of time.
0: Jennifer called Susan's dad, Chuck Cox.
2: I don't know how he felt about that. You know, I was trying to, to be calm, but I'm not sure if my panic was a little bit apparent or not.
7: I got a call from Jennifer, Josh's sister, wanting to know if I'd heard from her. Susan, and I said, well, no, has she called you? Okay, and she told me, well, they can't find her right now. They don't know, haven't heard from the family for, for Sunday, Monday, whatever, they hadn't heard from them. I called my wife and asked her if she Susan called her. No, she hadn't, okay. And, uh, but I was sure that, you know, it was just, somehow, uh, you know, the phone died or whatever it was, something simple. Or they had to take a child to the doctor, and you know, we'll hear from them later today. Of course, that never came.
0: Officer Brady went back to his patrol car and radioed dispatch, asking them to look up a plate number for the missing minivan. They verified it hadn't been involved in any crashes that morning. Dispatch also contacted local hospitals to see if Josh, Susan, Charlie, or Braden had been admitted. Nothing. Josh's mom told police she had called both Josh and Susan's workplaces. She gave them the phone numbers. Both Aspen Logistics and Wells Fargo Investments confirmed Josh and Susan had been scheduled to work, but both were absent. No call, no show. Brady called both Josh and Susan's cell phones. Each went straight to voicemail. It seemed less likely with each passing minute that the disappearance was an accident. So at about half past one in the afternoon, the officers decided to call in a detective. Ellis Maxwell had always wanted to be a cop, at least as far back as he could remember. He'd grown up hearing stories about the job from his father's dad. He saw the uniform and heard tales of heroism. Even as a boy, he'd wanted to be a part of it.
8: At the beginning of my career, I was dead set working for West Valley City Police Department. A couple of reasons. I had a lot of interaction with them, uh, living in West Valley, good and bad. You know, I was juvenile. I got I got in trouble a couple of times. Like what? <laughs> and uh just uh I got arrested for possession of alcohol one time. I'm like uh Jesse Casanata was the was the officer. Uh he was my school cop. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him. He was a great school resource officer, and I learned a ton from him. And he's probably a, a big contributor as to why I got into police work as well.
0: None of those offenses were serious enough to derail his ambitions. In 1995, while Josh Powell was attending community college, Ellis enrolled in the police academy. He paid his own way, hoping to make himself marketable to a department. If that ended up being his hometown of West Valley... All the better. But he knew the odds were against him.
8: Because in the academy they told us, look, you may or may not get a job. Like, it's tough. And it was like that. I mean, you'd go interview or go test somewhere, and you'd have hundreds of applicants, sometimes thousands.
0: Ellis graduated the academy, cleared his certification exams, and prepared to enter the world of law enforcement. He sent out a lot of job applications. The job market, as the academy had warned, was very tight. Ellis saw West Valley was hiring, not the police department, but instead the city's code enforcement division.
8: So I put in for that thinking, hey, get in, get my foot in the door, right? Get my foot in the door, do a bang-up job, apply for the police department, transfer over. (laughs) Sounds pretty easy. Not the case.
0: Code enforcement was not glamorous work. Ellis had to chase down abandoned shopping carts and issue citations for junky yards. But the job? kept his certification active. Before long, he took a second job as a reserve officer in the mountain resort town of Park City, home to world-famous ski resorts and the Sundance Film Festival. Working the equivalent of two full-time jobs put a pretty big strain on Ellis and his
8: young family. We had our first child in December of 97. And so I think it was around the spring of 98 that uh, they still wanted me to work these hours, and I couldn't, so... I quit. His dream
0: remained getting a gig as an actual officer in the West Valley City Police Department. He applied again and again and again. The persistence did lead to an interview, which ended without Ellis getting the job. He reached out to a friend in the department who told Ellis he was just too soft-spoken.
8: So the next time I interviewed, I didn't get the job. And uh, so I went to him again, and I said, hey, well, what did I do wrong? Like, how can I become better? And he told me the same thing. You're too soft-spoken. And I said, that's what you told me last time. He applied a third time and cleared the
0: interview only to be washed out by an out-of-state contractor's psych evaluation.
8: At that point, I was done. I was just, uh, you know, three strikes. I'm just, I'm fed up, fed up with the government, the way they operate. I mean, this is just ridiculous.
0: Around that time, Ellis learned Park City was hiring again. He'd enjoyed his time as a reserve officer there and figured joining the active duty force would be a good step up from the drudgery of code enforcement. He quit West Valley, took the Park City job, and prepared to move on from his dream of wearing the blues in his boyhood hometown.
8: So I was there, (laughs) and well, West Valley's hiring again. So I was like, all right, give us one more chance, right? So I put in. I passed the interview. But administration in Park City knew I had an interview before I did.
0: (laughs) Word, it appeared, tended to get around among Utah's police brass. One of Ellis's supervisors at Park City advised him to tell the chief about his upcoming interview with West Valley. Ellis thought that was a bad
8: idea. I'm not going to go to the chief and be like, hey, thanks for hiring me, but uh, just to let you know I'm looking at West Valley and I got an interview with him. That's just ludicrous. And so I didn't, and I guess... Uh, the chief was uh, very upset. And from that point forward, uh, my short stint at Park City full-time, it was uh, not good. The chief asked Ellis to resign.
0: He couldn't understand. He'd done good work for Park City. So he refused.
8: And he just, he got pissed, and he stood up and slammed his fist on the desk, and, you're fired. (laughs) And I was like, wow, never been fired before. So I left, and, you know, I was driving down the down the canyon of Parley's and you know my wife at the time was pregnant she was due in like two or three months and I don't have a job she was not working I own a house and you know got all this I'm like this is nuts and ironically West Valley Code Enforcement hires me without a bat of an eye they give me my pay they give me my seniority the whole experience left Ellis disillusioned he
0: figured it was time to change course go back to school learn a new trade Maybe he thought he'd go into construction. Then a friend, a retired officer, put a bug in his ear.
8: Uh, he said, "Hey, West Valley's hiring. You should you should apply." This. And I said, "I think I'm done." Mm, no, he wasn't. He talked me into it, and I went into that interview. I didn't care. Like I I don't even, I didn't wear a tie. I wore jeans. I wore a sh- button down shirt. I didn't shave. And I just went in. I didn't ask. I didn't do anything polite like what you're supposed to. Please have a seat. No, I sat down when I wanted to sit down. I answer their questions. And then when they said, you got any questions for us? I said, no, I got up and walked out.
0: Now, this was not the same soft-spoken young man who had three times applied and three times been rejected.
8: I came out and I was in City Hall and I passed uh, one of the sergeants. And they're like, don't tell me you just interviewed. And I said, yeah. I said, I don't care. I mean, a lot of you folks know who I am, A work ethic. If you want to hire me, hire me. If not, screw it. <laughs> and I left, and I got the job. At last, Ellis had achieved his dream.
0: He was a West Valley City police officer. He had a plan. Stay in West Valley and spend long enough on the job to qualify for his police pension.
8: So the whole goal was to get in, do 20 years, retire, uh, experience as, mu- as much of... Uh, police work that I could, uh, work as many, assi- as many assignments as I could, and uh, if I was still sane, alive, and
0: get out. It was September of 2001. As the dust of the Twin Towers settled in New York City, Ellis hit the streets on patrol in West Valley. A year and a half later, he joined the Investigations Division and became a school resource officer at Granger High. In 2006, the department moved him onto child sex abuse cases.
8: So I wasn't really too thrilled, but it was an opportunity to take on a new challenge, and I did, and I did that job for almost two years. Uh, I left there in 2008.
0: Ellis faced a crossroads. He'd spent enough time in the trenches by that point to qualify for a promotion. He didn't particularly want to become an administrator, but figured he could make sergeant and ride that rank to retirement. On the other hand, a colleague told him the Major
8: Crimes Division was shorthanded. He's like, hey, why don't you come over and join the team? And I was like, no, (laughs) absolutely not. I know what you guys do. Major
0: Crimes handled violent cases,
8: robberies, shootings, that kind of stuff. They were
0: also the Homicide Squad. Ellis had done enough work over the years supporting Major Crimes to
8: know it was a stressful gig. So I knew what they did. I knew they were busy. And I told him, absolutely not. One, I don't like the smell of dead people. Two, I like my time off, right? I'm like, I have no desire. And he kind of kept talking to me about it, talking to me about it. And I kind of thought about it and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe it is a little too early to promote. Ellis moved to major crimes
0: in May of 2008. He was still there on the morning of December 7th, 2009, when a family of four turned up missing.
8: The commute to work that morning was a doozy. It dumped at least, I don't know, eight inches of snow. Started snowing probably about three o'clock in the morning and, and snowed into the commuting hour. And... Uh, There was a lot of snow, and and a lot of people, anybody who watched the news, stuff like that, knew this storm was coming in. Ellis made it to the office in spite of the weather. The morning was just like any other morning. I went into the office, I sat down, I believe I was reviewing a, a robbery case, a bank robbery case. He hadn't been at it for long when he was interrupted. The sergeant at the time, kind of a bolstery Philadelphian individual, right, opens up the squeaky door, walks in, and you can, you can already smell him coming, right? The, the Colony War. And he comes up behind me and he's like, uh, Yo, Ellis, what are you doing? I like, just doing my job, man. Right? Working on this robbery case. All right, well, I need you to go out and help uh, patrol on a missing family.
0: Ellis picked up the phone and called the patrol officers who were out at the Sarah Circle house. They gave him Josh and Susan's names, the address, and briefed him on what had happened so far.
8: He spent about an hour, just doing research. I look and I can't find anything on these people, right? There's no criminal history. There's uh, nothing in our report database. I think there was like a a traffic accident like a while back, but nothing serious, right?
0: No signs of prior domestic violence. No 911 calls from the house. No criminal history for either Josh or Susan. Nothing. So Ellis headed to the house.
8: So when I get out there, um, you know, it's frigid cold. And there's, you know, patrol officers everywhere, and there's there's family and, and friends and neighbors. The patrol
0: officers shared what little they knew. The last anyone had heard from the Powells was about noon the day prior. They hadn't said anything to anyone about taking a trip. Ellis took a walk inside the house.
8: There was no sign of a struggle inside the residence. So, you know, there wasn't, like, tipped-over nightstands and broken lamps or broken dishes or... You know, anything like that, like any signs of a domestic violence, like a physical domestic violence, there was no sign of a robbery.
0: All of the doors and windows were secure, with the exception of the one window the patrol officers had smashed.
8: There was two box fans that were set up in the front room. One was at one end of the front room, the other one was at another end, and they were in operation.
0: One of the fans sat across the living room from the couch,
8: against the west wall that separated the
0: living room from the kitchen. The other was by the north wall, near the entertainment center. The two fans were 90 degrees off-axis from one another, but pointed at the same spot, the foot of the couch.
8: Some believed that you know, it was blowing on the carpet, but the reality was it was blowing on maybe the carpet, but also the couch. It was very obvious that the couch had been cleaned, where the loveseat hadn't.
0: Ellis poked around a little more. He noticed a flip video camera on a shelf still sealed in its packaging. It was the prize Josh had won from his work party on Saturday night. There went the theory that the family had gone out to test their new toy. He moved down the hallway to the master bedroom.
8: There was a vacuum sitting in the middle of the floor. There was a steam cleaner. And more importantly, Susan's purse is sitting in there and undisturbed right like her wallet's in there her ids in there her keys are in there you know after you, we look through it you can tell there's no credit cards missing or anything like that no cash is missing shed jewelry in the bathroom and in the bedroom none of that appeared to be missing if somebody was going to rob the place they're not going to pick out jewelry and then put it back nicely right
0: this was all very odd Ellis called dispatch and had them place Josh, Susan, Charlie, and Braden, as well as their van, on NCIC. That's the FBI's National Crime Information Center database, a system cops from across the nation use to share information about cases. If officers anywhere in the country encountered the Powell family, he'd hear about it immediately. He made other calls.
9: Hi, Susan. This is Detective Maxwell, Cors Valley City Police Department. If you could, you may call back. I'd appreciate it. Uh, you call
8: 801.: I've called 40, you know Susan's phone. I called 40, Josh's 80, phone. 80, 80, 80, they both go directly to Voicemail. They don't ring, so that's a clear indication we all know the phones are off.
0: Josh's mom told Ellis she and Jennifer were Josh and Susan's only relatives in Utah. She alluded to some friction in their marriage, but glossed over the details. Kiersey Hellowell offered a more damning account. As one of Susan's closest friends, she was privy to more of the couple's private life. She told Ellis how Susan had struggled to make peace with her husband over his falling away from their religion. She described Josh as controlling and verbally abusive. Ellis talked to Debbie, the daycare provider, who described how she had kicked off the whole thing that morning. He talked to Susan's mom and Josh's dad, both of whom were in Washington. Judy Cox hadn't heard from Susan since the prior Thursday. Steve Powell said he had last spoken to Josh the day before at about noon when Josh had called asking for a pancake recipe. Both confirmed the couple had not made any plans to visit family in Washington. One of the neighbors approached Ellis as he sat in his car, talking to Josh's dad on the phone.
8: And she came and walked over to my car, and I kind of had to give her the one finger, like, hold on. And I finished my conversation with Steve Powell, rolled my window down, and... Yeah, uh, she shares with me that uh, she just talked to Josh Powell, and I thought to myself, "Okay, I, I don't know who you are, <laughs> for starters, right?" And I, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much credibility to give this gal, right? Like, I mean, you got family, friends, the police that have called, left messages, and you're the one that's talked to Josh Powell. <laughs>
0: Giovanna Owings did not want the spotlight.
4: I, yeah, I don't want to be famous for being the last person to see Susan Powell alive, you know?
0: Like it or not, she was. Giovanna's son Alex had babysat for Josh and Susan the night of Saturday, December 5th, when they went to Josh's work Christmas party. The next afternoon, on Sunday the 6th, Susan called Giovanna after church.
4: The blanket that she was working on for her, for one of her boys, the yarn was all messed up, and she asked if I could come over and help her with, you know, untangling it. Um, and I said, sure. And then in the background, I could hear Josh saying, well, she can stay for uh, lunch, um, but j- we just have enough for her.
0: Giovanna accepted the invitation. She went over to the Powell house at about 2.45 in the afternoon and sat with Susan in the living room. Josh had Charlie and Braden in the kitchen, where he was making pancakes. When they were ready, he brought Susan and Giovanna their individual servings.
4: And while Susan and I ate and were talking, he then cleaned up the kitchen, put all the dishes in the dishwasher.
0: Susan noticed her husband was doing the chores without being asked. A rare occurrence. He
4: may very well have been putting on a really good show for me, that uh, he was a loving, caring husband. And uh, I bought it. At one point,
0: Josh even came and draped a blanket around Susan's shoulders.
4: I thought that was nice, but, you know, I've seen husbands that act that way, so I didn't realize that that was not a normal thing for Josh.
0: Susan told Giovanna she believed she had miscarried the month prior. Giovanna didn't want to press and decided to ask her about it later when the boys were out of earshot.
4: Then she said she was she was feeling tired. She And so I thought, well, that's perfectly natural. She's going all, all week long, and if she did you know, miscarry, then she'll be a little tireder. Anyway, so she said she was going to go um, just lie down for a little bit in, in the bedroom, and I was like, okay, that's fine.
0: It was about 4.30. Giovanna just kept working on the tangled yarn. Josh told her he was going to take the boys sledding, Giovanna was focused on the knot and didn't get the hint.
4: And, and then he says, well, I really need to lock the front door when I leave. And then I got it, it was like, OK, I should probably leave then. So I cut the yarn and took the uh, messed up yarn home to untangle. And I said, well, I should have this finished by this evening. And, and he said, well, there's no hurry. Uh, just..." give it to her on Tuesday on her day off. And I was like, okay, fine.
0: At about 5.30, Giovanna watched Josh pull out of the driveway in his minivan with both Charlie and Braden in their car seats. Then she went home. Giovanna received a text message from her neighbor Kiersey Helliwell the following afternoon on Monday, December 7th. It said no one had seen or heard from Josh, Susan, or the boys since noon on Sunday.
4: I knew that was wrong because I'd been over there that afternoon and had left early evenings. Giovanna
0: had Josh's cell phone number because her son Alex sometimes babysat the Powell boys.
4: So I called Josh on my phone and he didn't answer. And then my son called him on his phone and Josh answered and he, my son immediately hung up. And I said, why did you do that? Everybody's worried about where they are. Call him back.
0: Cell phone logs would later show it was 3.02 p.m.
4: He called him back, and Josh answered, and he handed the phone to me. And I said, Josh, where are you? Everybody's worried. Nobody's seen Susan. They said she didn't go to work. You need to get home. And so he said he was out south, and he'd be home soon. And I was just like, okay, whatever, and we hung up, and that was that.
0: Giovanna shared all of this with Detective Ellis Maxwell, letting him know Josh and the boys were back. But there was no word about Susan. Josh's mom and sister Jennifer had left Sarah Circle and gone home by that point.
2: It was just kind of a waiting thing. You know, we were just honestly a little bit in shock, numb, not knowing what to do, and we just sat around waiting.
0: Jennifer's phone rang just before 5.30 p.m. The caller ID showed it was Josh. She answered and shouted into the phone, asking her brother where he'd been and if Susan was with him. Josh said he was at work and he had the boys. They were fine. Jennifer said she knew that wasn't true. He wasn't at work. Okay, all right. Josh admitted he wasn't at work. He had taken the boys camping but said they'd been stranded by the snowstorm. Jennifer asked again, where's Susan? Josh said she was at work. Again, Jennifer challenged the lie. She told Josh Susan had not gone to work. Her voice climbed and she shouted, where is she? I don't know, Josh shouted back. Then he asked, what do you know? That question caught Jennifer off guard. She was afraid her brother had done something terrible.
2: That feeling had just come over over me while I was at the house and when he called that night it was <sighs> disturbing disturbing to talk to him and realize that 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 premonition was actually valid.
0: Jennifer lowered her voice, fighting to keep her composure.
2: Okay, I don't actually want him to run. He has two innocent little babies with him and I you know I wanted them to make it back you know we wanted them and so I backed off I calmed down (laughs) and I just kind of gave him a little bit of a the gist of the situation there's a cop at your house we broke the window they're guarding the house basically I wanted to make it sound as benign as possible and so let's meet there you know and and uh, and uh, we'll see where to go from there.
0: Josh agreed to return home. Jennifer grabbed her coat, went to the car, and drove back to Sarah circle. Along the way, she called Ellis and told him what had happened. They met outside of the Powell house, expecting Josh to join them. Minutes ticked by with no sign of the family's blue minivan. Ellis dialed Josh's phone number, but he didn't answer.
2: We're all sitting in that circle in our vehicles just waiting. And finally, Ellis comes over and, you know, I'm just like, why don't you just give him a call?
0: (laughs) Jennifer did, then handed her phone to Ellis. It was 5.48 p.m.
8: And he answers, and I tell him, you know, I identify myself, and I tell him, Josh, you need to come home. And I verify with him, is Susan with you? No, she's at work. Okay, well, you need to come home. We have been at your home now for, you know, eight hours, nine hours, whatever. You need to get here. Josh replies, I need to go feed my kids. We need to go get... And then he ignores me and starts asking his kids, kids, what do you want? You want pizza? Do you want hamburgers? And at this point, I'm really frustrated because he is... He, he, just, he just has that I don't care attitude, right? And so I tell him, I said, and I was more... I guess, forceful with my words. And and I told him, you need to come to the house. Like, you need to come here now. We, your kids can eat here, but you need to get here.
0: Josh said, okay. Ellis asked how soon he'd arrive, and Josh said, eh, he wouldn't be long. But Josh didn't show up until about 6.40 p.m., almost an hour later.
2: So Josh has just taking his sweet time. I think... Uh... I don't even know what was going through his head, but he, you know, he was getting the kids food and I, you know, but what, how long does that take? Stop at McDonald's and grab them a bite to eat so that they're not starving and screaming. And there are cops at your house. Doesn't that feel a little urgent?
0: More than three hours had elapsed since Josh had first made contact, answering the call from Giovanna's son. Ellis met the minivan as it rolled to a stop in the cul-de-sac.
8: He clearly can't get into his driveway with all the cop cars and everything and uh, I approach the passenger side of the the vehicle and you know as he rolls down the window and I ask him you know where the hell have you been right like I talked to you an hour and a half ago
0: Ellis caught a whiff
8: of grease and pepperoni Well I had to go get my kid some food and he'd stopped and little Caesar and bought him pizza. And uh, I asked him why he hadn't returned anybody's phone calls, why he hadn't been answering his phone. He told me it was off, and I asked him why his phone was off. He said he was trying to preserve the battery because he didn't have a charger. And all at this time, as I'm talking to him, looking in his vehicle, there's a charger that's plugged in. So, you know, there's a couple of cues, you know, that are there. And, but at the end of the day, it's not enough that you can put handcuffs on him and say, okay, we're going to jail.
0: Ellis told Josh they needed to talk. He asked him to drive over to the police department's West Side substation, just a few blocks up the road. He didn't want to give Josh any more opportunities to delay.
6: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike, and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, That's audible.com/slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500500 Shopify 500.
0: Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Wondery. At the substation, Ellis set down an audio recorder and got right to the point.
9: Do you know where Susan's at? Mm
3: -hmm.
9: No. No. When's the last time you've seen her?
5: Probably about midnight of last night. Where at? At home?
9: Where was she doing? What were? What was she wearing? Where was she at in the
3: house?
5: Um. She was wearing. She was just wearing something comfortable.
0: That is the actual recording of the interview. As you can hear, Josh was not very forthcoming.
9: And obviously, everybody's concerned. Everybody's worried. Everybody's worried about all four of you. I mean, yeah, we started getting phone calls at 10 o'clock this morning,
5: and... I, I didn't even know that was happening, and I apologize that, um, like I say, we got snowed in, and there's just no cell service, so it killed my phone, you know, mm-hmm. it just tries harder and dies, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, In fact, I actually turned it off so to try to save the battery.
0: Ellis made note of the battery excuse again, but didn't call attention to it. Instead, he asked Josh to describe everything that had happened over the last 48 hours. Josh said Susan had gone to church with the boys on Sunday, then returned home around noon. He went to the grocery store to buy stuff for lunch. Susan invited Giovanna to come over while he made pancakes and omelets. He said Susan had taken a nap after lunch. Giovanna stuck around until about 5.30. Here, Josh and Giovanna's stories diverged. Josh claimed he remained home when Giovanna left, contradicting her eyewitness account that Josh left the house at the same time with the boys. He told Ellis he was home at about 6.30 when Susan woke up, ate a hot dog dinner, and then settled down for another nap with Brayden. At that point, Josh said he took only Charlie sledding, they came back at about 8, at which point Josh read a book to Charlie and put him to bed. Then Susan gave her husband a chore to do at 10 p.m. on a Sunday night.
5: She wanted me to clean the couch, so I did. And then, uh, then we watch.
3: What do you mean by
5: clean the couch?
3: Um, just
9: get rid of all the kids' goobers and stuff. So like what, like a washcloth or something, or an
3: upholstery
5: cleaner?
9: Okay. So you use the rug doctor and clean the couch?
3: Yeah. Okay.
0: The rug doctor, the same one Ellis had seen in the master bedroom that afternoon. Josh said he'd set up the fans in order to dry the couch after cleaning it to keep mildew from forming. Ellis wanted specifics about the camping trip. Josh told him, Susan, she'd known about it and she was okay with it.
9: And okay. well, where did you drive to? You said Pony Express? Um, well, I started heading south through
5: Tooele. Turned on to the Pony Express.
9: Mm-hmm. And that's how far down the Pony Express did you go?
5: Not very far.
3: <laughs> Maybe
9: 20 miles, I don't know. 20 miles on the Pony Express? Maybe. Okay. Did you just stop in on the side of the road or stay on the road when you went down there? Is that where you just drove straight to? From your house?
5: Pretty much, yeah.
9: Pretty much. Where'd you stop in between?
5: Well, I mean, no, oh, that's it. Uh,
9: well, pretty much. I mean, it's. Sorry. I mean, pretty much means you stopped somewhere else. So no, I.
5: I I, I, don't, I just went straight there.
9: You drove straight to the point Express?
8: Okay. Josh's answers were all but useless. Anytime I would ask him certain questions, the answers I got was, I don't know, I don't remember, or it was silence, or he would try to deter the conversation in a different direction, all right, such as when we sat down in the west side precinct there, and he would turn his attention to his kids to avoid questioning. Charlie and Braden continually interrupted. Yeah, it was definitely a a mistake on my end. Um, I should have left those kids with uh, Jennifer or Teresa. Stuff like that. (laughs) Do (laughs) you have
3: paper money? We're not going to buy pop out of that machine.
8: It made it tough. We did get a, a domestic violence advocate over there to eventually sit down and kind of uh, entertain the kids, but Josh was not pleased with that, and it diverted his attention even more. But what else could they do? Josh wasn't under arrest
0: and didn't have to be there. Forcing the issue with the boys might have ended the
8: interview. The last thing I want is him to not talk to me.
0: So Ellis dealt with the situation as best he could.
8: So when you got to your destination, 20 miles,
9: possibly 20 miles down the Plane Express, what... Uh, did you just stay on the road? Did you pull off on the
5: side of the road? No, they, they have trails that you can drive on and mm-hmm. I mean, I just found one and How far off the trail did you go? I, I don't know, a mile or
0: something, I, I don't know. Josh told Ellis he had mixed up the days in his head, that when he had left on Sunday night, he thought it was Saturday. He realized the mistake only after waking on Monday morning. By then, it was too late to call his work and beg forgiveness. Upon realizing the mistake, he drove around aimlessly for hours to exactly where, he couldn't say, only stopping to make a fire so the boys could roast marshmallows.
5: Well, we drove further out the Pony Express. Mm -hmm. Um... To that campground.
3: Okay. Let me turn around.
5: Okay.
3: Um, when it got
5: old, we drove back. When what? Got, when what? When it got old? Yeah, I mean when we'd had our fill, we were done. Well, the boys weren't done, but I was done. Mm-hmm. So then. We go back. What time was that
3: at?
5: I don't know, maybe
9: two. That's when he started coming back home?
0: Yeah. On the way home, he stopped at a car wash in the city of Lehi. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. The roads were still covered in salt, slush, and grime from the snowstorm. Ellis wanted to know which car wash. Josh said he wasn't sure. After washing the car, Josh said he drove north to Susan's work. They only had the one car, so Josh typically took Susan to work in the morning and sometimes picked her up in the afternoon. He couldn't explain how she might have made it to work that morning, considering he had the minivan out in the desert. Ellis asked Josh about his
5: marriage. I mean, you know, it's pretty good. I mean... We sometimes have disagreements, but yeah, you know, everybody has disagreements, right? I think so. So nothing. It's not like not like we really get into screaming fights or
9: anything. Yeah. Well, not usually.
5: I mean, this happened a couple of times. Yeah. But you know, it's. Very, very
0: rare. Oh, come on. That wasn't true. Ellis held his cards close, not revealing the stories he'd already heard from Kiersey, Jennifer, and others.
9: You guys only have one see you. A <laughs> you. see a counselor. To, what do you see a counselor for? Um, like a marriage counselor? Yeah, just
5: a marriage
9: counselor. Just, you know,
5: working out, just working out issues. What kind of issues are those? Um, well,
3: uh,
5: I mean, frankly, she has kind of a temper. Okay, um, and I guess sometimes I'm lazy. Okay, so that led you guys to marriage counseling. And I wasn't going to church. Apparently it bothered her a lot, so So I've been going to church.
0: Ellis asked Josh to name his wife's closest friends. His first answer was Debbie, their daycare provider. He offered a few other names, including Linda from Susan's work, he didn't know or didn't want to offer Linda Bagley's last name
8: which makes it challenging right because you can't challenge his answers because he's not giving you too many lies if any just I don't know I don't remember but well, let me tell you something you're, I mean you're kind of being helpful but you're not being helpful
3: because
9: I mean I've been married and I know who Meg tell you who my who Well, um, she's friends talk to are. you know what I'm saying and I actually know who her closest friends are, and you're telling
5: me...
0: Ellis's reservoir of patience had run dry.
5: First, we're taking a report at 10 o'clock. Well, I think she would go to work. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, she didn't go to work, dude. I mean, I think she would try to go to work. Well, she
9: didn't even try to go Well, I don't know. She didn't go to work. She wasn't at work. She didn't go to work at all today.
3: So... Yeah. Seems
5: like she would have gotten up got ready.
8: It it was super frustrating, because as a detective, you obviously want them to answer truthfully, ideally. You want them to answer truthfully. You want them to confess. Those are the things you want. It doesn't happen. They're going to lie. And when they do provide those lies, you tuck it away, and you later bring it back up, right? Let them tell their story, and then bring it back up, and go, okay, look, this answer doesn't fit, and this is why. And he wouldn't allow that. Ellis
0: had never encountered someone quite like Josh in his career. Nothing he
8: tried seemed to
0: shake him.
9: Where's her cell phone now? I don't know. You don't know where her cell phone is? Okay.
0: Did you catch that little hint of doubt in Ellis's voice there? Remember that. It will prove important in just a moment.
9: So what are you thinking? What do you think I should, where should I start looking? What should I start doing? What do you think I should do?
3: Do you have a line to the hospital? It's
5: already been done. I don't know. I've never, never dealt with this.
0: That was about the closest Josh came to expressing emotion. But he didn't ask for Elsa's help finding Susan. He didn't offer any ideas on where she might have gone, either. They were getting nowhere. Ellis cut to the point.
9: You didn't take her out to the Point Express with you guys?
5: No.
9: The last time you seen her was at midnight last
5: night. After midnight,
9: yeah. And you haven't seen her talk to her since?
3: No.
0: At last, straight answers. But were they the truth?
9: Okay, well, I want to check I want to check your van. Can I check your van? Can I search your van?
5: Search it? Mm-hmm. I guess so. Well, it's yes or no. It's, that's
3: what I'm asking.
5: I mean, you're just saying look through it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think
8: so. Okay. He's reluctant. He's hesitant. You know, what are you looking for? Why do you need to do this? And, you know, explain to him, well, it's just protocol, man. Like... Your wife's missing. We need, you know, you've been gone, and you don't know where she's at. Uh, we need to look in your van.
0: Ellis handed Josh a consent form, which he signed.
8: He does with the agreement that he will stand by and stop us at any time. So you got to do what you got to do. And uh, so he signs, and, and we go out, and we start looking through his van.
0: Ellis and his partner, Gavin Cook, lifted the tailgate and opened all the doors. Josh plopped down in the driver's seat. A blue plastic tarp was spread across the floor in the back, as if to keep the carpet clean. On the left were tools, including a wood-handled shovel, a rust-flecked metal rake, and a yellow-bristled broom. Next to those sat a humidifier and a dusty plastic
8: tote. That have just ridiculous amounts of unopened camping equipment that you would find in Kmart or Walmart, right. In the tote were a poncho, a Mylar emergency blanket, a tablecloth, tent
0: stakes, but no tent, toilet paper, a mosquito coil, and a multi-tool, among other knickknacks. You can see pictures of all of this at thecoldpodcast.com. To the right of the tote was a blue plastic toboggan. Stacked inside were an orange heavy-duty extension cord, an electrical circular saw, a razor box cutter, and a folding handsaw. By the sled and in front of the tote were a red five-gallon plastic gas can and a Yamaha gas-powered generator.
8: This guy has all kinds of stuff back there.
0: In the rear passenger seats, the detectives found a comforter from a queen-size bed and other blankets, as well as extra clothing for Charlie and Brayden. A storage compartment behind the driver's seat held a box of blue nitrile gloves. The front passenger seat was covered with clutter. A half-empty box of graham crackers sat in the footwell, along with a scarf which Susan had likely crocheted. A red onesie covered with Scooby-Doo characters was draped across the center console, between the two front seats, along with a camera bag.
8: But the most interesting thing that was discovered is in the console. So when you open the console in this minivan, there's like a tray, right? So you can put some change or small items. Well, if you remove that tray... The console goes much deeper, and you can put bigger items in there. And we find a pink Motorola cell phone.
0: Whose phone is this? Detective Cook asked. He held it up for both Josh and Ellis
8: to see. And he looks, and he is like a deer in headlights. And he can't, he just, he can't speak. And he says, he doesn't say anything. And then I say to him, I'm like, Josh, why do you have Susan's cell phone? And he's like, uh, and you start stumbling. He's like, he says something to the effect of, well, I, I borrowed her phone. I, I borrowed her phone yesterday because I needed some cell phone number. I needed cell phone numbers out of it. And I, I must've put it in my pocket and forgot. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous answer ever. Why was it ridiculous? Hypothetically, if, if this is truthful, you would have, known that you had it, and you put it in the console. So if you did leave it in your pocket, at some point you pulled it out of your pocket and you put it and you buried it in the console. Like, you didn't just set it on top. You didn't just leave it sitting in the car. You didn't put it in the jockey box. You buried it in this console.
0: Not only that, but Josh had twice called Susan's number just that afternoon to leave her voicemails. Why would he do that if he knew he had her cell phone? Josh said... He had forgotten it was there. I asked Ellis why he didn't arrest Josh right that
8: moment. Yeah, why isn't that enough? Um, you know, you can't you can't go into a courtroom and, and stand on the bench and tell uh, the defense attorney that, hey, we have a no-body situation here. We have our cell phone, the husband was in possession, I mean, Nah, it's not going to fly. There's just, there's no way. You've got to be able to prove that he is responsible for either murdering her or kidnapping her, or he's responsible for her disappearance. And being in possession of a cell phone, you know, it's just not going to fly.
0: He said it's different with two strangers. Having some random person's cell phone after they disappear could well be enough evidence. But Josh and Susan were husband and wife. A defense attorney could spin any number of scenarios to explain away Josh having the cell phone.
8: Also, you gotta take into consideration that they had one vehicle.
0: Frustrating as it was, Ellis handed Josh the keys to the van. Josh gathered the boys, loaded them into their car seats, and drove home. Ellis followed him over to the house and had him do a walkthrough to make sure nothing was missing. Josh said everything looked fine. It was about 9.30 p.m., nearly 12 hours since Josh's mom had first called 911. Looking back, Ellis regrets not writing a search warrant for the house and minivan that night.
8: Myself and the sergeant and my partner that was assisting at the time, you know, we discussed it. It's like, you know, can we we get a search warrant right now? And the decision was no. You know, let's let's have him come back in in the morning and uh, do another interview and go from there. It was a
0: judgment call, arguably the wrong one. To this day, Ellis says he's not sure serving a warrant that night would have changed anything.
8: But it was a learning experience as well, because I'll tell you what, from that day forward, if I questioned if I needed a search warrant for a residence or a home, I wrote it and I submitted it. Let we'll the judge make that decision.
0: Ellis gave Josh his card, told him to find a babysitter for the boys, and meet him at police headquarters for a follow-up interview in the morning. Josh said, okay, and agreed to be there by 9 a.m. Ellis had learned his lesson about Josh using his sons as a distraction. He repeated, Josh should make immediate arrangements with Terry or Debbie, the daycare provider, to take the boys. But Josh did neither. Debbie, it turned out, had stopped by the house while Josh was at the substation.
1: I went back, and there was a police car in the driveway just sitting there. And I uh, guess what happened is that they were, they, once they broke the window, they had to keep the property secure. And so they hadn't said anything to me. So I contacted Jennifer the next day, and she was the one that told me that Josh had come back with the boys. And I said, oh, they're okay then. And she said, well, I'm not sure. Susan wasn't with them. And I'm like, what do you mean Susan's not with them?
0: Susan's friend Kiersey could not believe it either.
1: And I found out sometime
4: around 9 or 9.30 Monday night because a neighbor of his called me and they said, Josh is back. And I said, oh, thank goodness, are they okay? And she said, well, he and the boys are there, but Susan isn't. And I immediately said, what did he do? That was my first thought, what has he done?
0: On the next episode of Cold...
8: The children are telling our detectives that uh, mom went with you guys last night and that she didn't come back.
0: If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up TheColdPodcast.com. Also, if Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, in other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1 800 799 7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to my team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley for all of their help with this project. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bondmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cold ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at listenerstudy.com.